chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. And um, as you're getting there, let me just give you a little bit of background, what's happened up to the point of our passage. Um, The apostles have healed a lame beggar in chapter 3, and then they're brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin threatened them to to not speak about this or not speak about the name of Jesus anymore in that first half of chapter 4. And then the text goes on like this, and this is what I want to read if you're there. It's Acts 4, 23 through 27, or I'm sorry, maybe a little bit further. It's actually, yeah, 31. So we're going to read that. When they were released from the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling Jewish leaders in their day. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together and said to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In 2009, while it's been 10 years ago, I happen to be, um, I'm an active duty Navy chaplain. I happen to be serving with a Marine battalion at Camp Pendleton at the time. And that opened up for me a unique opportunity to, um, to play, actually to try out for the all-Marine volleyball team. I'd already been playing for the all-Navy team for a few years before that. And while I was serving with a Marine battalion, it gave me the opportunity to, to play for the Marine Corps. And... Um, you know, after you, you, what happens in that environment is you, you submit a resume, and then based off your resume, they invite you to come try out. Um, you know, they fly. I was at Pendleton. They flew me to uh, Cherry Point. And uh, you go through a week of tryouts, basically. And then um, if you make the cut, then you move into um, practicing for another three weeks to head to the All-Armed Forces Tournament. So many of you might look at me and think, volleyball? (laughs) Maybe soccer. But um, actually, there was a time in my life that I could jump close to 40 inches, and uh, that made a difference for me. Um, But I was trying out for the setter position, and and so I'll never forget the, you know, midway through tryouts, the coach is like, yeah, you can set, but, uh, you know, we really need to see that you can really play some defense here. And... um, and so it just so happened, what we would do, we'd have two-a-days, and, uh, and then sometimes at night, we'd play some local men's club, whether it was, 
you know, the men's team at Wilmington, at UNC Wilmington, or some other local men's team. We'd play them, and uh, I don't know if you know much about volleyball, but, you know, the, the objective is to put the ball down on the court of your opponent, right? No matter how you can do that. And the, the most exciting way to do that is to have an open net that is no blocker in front of you and hit the ball straight down on their court. No one can touch it. Well, there was this moment, um, you know, after the coach had said those words to me, and uh, there was a moment where I was, uh, I was playing. My rotation had me um, on the right sideline in the back, and there's our opponent's setter um, faked attack and drew both of our blockers on that side of the net and therefore left that attacker with a completely open net. So here I am, as close as you know, that screen is, to a guy hitting in my direction. <laughs> and you know, he was looking for the straight down kill. And sure enough, no, you know, no blocker in front of him, the guy crushes the ball straight down. And just out of nowhere, I stuck this arm out and this flat arm went straight to our setter, who distributed it straight to our outside guy who crushed it, and we got the point. But, you know, I could not have, I couldn't have planned for that moment anyway. That was just instinctive. I was the oldest person trying out for the team. I made it. But I was, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I couldn't have planned for that moment right there, right? What had happened is years and years and years, sorry, John, I had to say older and older, but years and years of, <laughs> of practice had gotten me to the point where I didn't even think about you know, putting my arm flat under a ball that's moving 100 miles an hour, you know, and tilting it the right way and making sure that it's flat in one arm, by the way, not two. And it, you know, perfectly to our center. I couldn't have planned it. It was instinctive. It had just been ingrained in me. And what I want to look at today is this prayer of these disciples, of the apostles, that when they are threatened by the Sanhedrin to keep their mouths closed, what is their instinctive response it's this prayer. This is their instinct. They rush back to each other, to their friends, it says, and they pray this prayer. And, you know, for me, I know how I got to the point where, I, where that happened for me in volleyball years and years and years. And, and so I, I want us to ask the question, how did they get where they were? How did that become their instinctive prayer? Because we're going to look later at, at what our instinctive prayer might be right now. But how did they get there? You know, I don't, if you spend much time with, um, with John Piper, you might hear him talk about his references to the first question of the Westminster Confession. Does anyone know that, by the way? What's the question? What is the chief end of man? And the answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What Piper likes to do with that is he likes to ask this question. What is God's chief end? And you know what that is? To glorify God and enjoy himself forever, right? It sounds egotistical in our fallen minds, but it's not for the God who is the most glorious of all, whose perfect fellowship in the Trinity is the most delightful fellowship, right? And so God's aim for even bringing man into existence is for his glory. You think about Adam. God creates Adam, who Luke calls the son of God, by the way. He creates Adam as his image bearer, 
And he says to Adam, be fruitful, that is, have lots of children, multiply and subdue the earth to bring glory, my fame, from shore to shore across the earth. That was his plan with Adam. But Adam's failure seems to thwart God's plan. But what does God do? God promises a coming redeemer. He recreates the world with Noah. And then he promises a people to Abraham through whom the nations of the earth should be blessed. Do you hear that echo? The nations of the earth will be blessed through you because that's what God wants, his fame and his glory to be known to the nations. And so their captivity in Egypt again gives the appearance that God's plans are frustrated and yet he raises up a deliverer, Moses, and God binds himself in covenant to Abraham's people and calls his new son Israel out of Egypt. So that as God's special possession, a kingdom of priests, Israel could fulfill the mission that Adam failed to do. And that is display the marvels of God's glory to the ends of the earth. But as that covenant people move through the desert, through the conquests, to the times of judges, through their first king Saul, right up to David, Israel's wayward character is clearly portrayed, isn't it? I mean, we don't have time to catalog all their failings. And then King David bursts on the stage, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says, and the hope that Israel could fulfill its mission at last of spreading God's glory to the ends of the earth was revived, but very, very short-lived, wasn't it? The kingdom soon divides, and the kings of the north and the south begin whoring after the gods of the other nations, instead of leading them to Yahweh. Listen, if you want a picture of that in snapshot, without your children, read Ezekiel chapter 16. Maybe today as you reflect on this. Ezekiel 16, just get a sense of what happens. See, the law that was given to that people, as they all swore, as they stood on the banks looking over into you know, the promised land from Moab, as they all raised their hand and said, we will do everything you say, Moses, what you said in Deuteronomy. They don't do. Why? Because the law can't change their heart. It can only expose it. We know that in our own lives, don't we? The law doesn't change our heart. It exposes our heart. We know it in our children's life. We can lay down the law with our kids, right? That's not the thing that's going to change their heart. Only Jesus, only the Spirit I don't think there's anyone in the room old enough to remember this movie. It's an old Harrison Ford movie called Mosquito Coast. Anybody? Um, It's a really interesting story about a man who's an inventor, and he gets really undone by by the trajectory of industrialism in his life, and so he decides to to flee to paradise. He just needs to get away from the industrialism. He flees to paradise... But what does he do out there? He invents an ice machine in the middle of the paradise jungle. And you know what happens? He starts war after war after war of people striving to get this ice machine. See, what happened? He tried to flee to paradise, but what did he take with him? Himself. Right? We we can't escape that. Israel couldn't escape that. Israel, in their sin, had become blind and deaf and imprisoned in the darkness of their sins. And so how could they possibly be the witnesses to God's glory to all the nations? 
They have broken the covenant and severed the bond with their God. And so once again, all looks lost. But in the second half of Isaiah's book, God promises that an obedient individual servant would come, and he would not only be a righteous replacement for the wayward people, but he would also serve as the redemptive restorer of that people. He not only comes as the replacement, but as the redemptive restorer of those people. And I want us to take a look at Isaiah 42, 1 through 10, just so I can make this point for you really quickly. Isaiah 42, 1 through 10. Listen to what it says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I'm going to read on in a second, but just that word justice in Isaiah's context doesn't mean the same thing that we mean by justice. It means restoring, restoring everything to what it's supposed to be. One of my pastors used to use a really great illustration about you know, having your painting stolen, your prized painting in your home. Well, when the police call you and say, hey, we caught the criminal who stole your painting. And you say, you don't care about that, do you? You're like, okay, you got my painting, right? No, but, you know, full justice is going to be given to the man that stole your painting. You don't care. You want the restoration of your painting back. And that's what Isaiah means. He means that this one to come is going to restore all things. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness." You see that? I will give you as a covenant for the people. That's the word about restoration for Israel. He is going to be the covenant curse bearer on behalf of his people. But he's also, in doing that, going to be the light for the nations, the light to the Gentiles. He's going to open the eyes that are blind, not only in Israel. He's not only going to bring out the prisoners who are imprisoned in their sin, the Israelites, but he's going to bring out the prisoners from the nations. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. And I want to look quickly just to get these words in our mind, Isaiah 43, 10, and verse 12. Listen to what Isaiah says. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Now, what's happened right before this is God is holding a court session and he's asked the, the witnesses of the, of the idols and of the idol nations, he's asked to come forth and present their case. And they can't, they're blind and deaf themselves. But then he says to Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. 
Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. When Isaiah was speaking these words about this coming servant, Isaiah did not have a clue who he was speaking about. He couldn't have, right? Do you remember what Peter says? You know, angels looked in to desire what these things meant. Isaiah didn't know, but we know clearly, don't we? We know who this promised servant was. We know the bond between the Lord and his faulty servants would be reestablished in the suffering of Jesus Christ, the holy servant. And one way that, that it makes that absolutely clear in our minds although there's many others that do. Look at Simeon's song in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. You remember what's happening? Jesus is being presented as an infant to the temple by his parents, and Simeon is waiting there for him. And if we can't get this up, I'll, I'll pull it up and say it to you. But you can turn there. Can we? Yeah, we got it. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does he mean? Waiting for the restoration, waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said this. Listen to what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, meaning I can go die now. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the next verse and for glory to your people Israel. What is Simeon saying? He's saying exactly what Isaiah longed for is happening right in their midst with Jesus now. And he's saying that God is now working a new thing so that his glory can now once again go to the nations by his servants. And so it's not accidental as we come to the opening chapters of Acts and we, and we recognize that Jesus chose 12 apostles, how do I know this isn't accidental? Because I know this because only one important thing is, rec is recorded by Luke. In between the time that Jesus departs, that is taken up, and the time that the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, one thing happens. You know what that is? the number of apostles is restored back to 12. What had happened to the number of apostles? One of them had betrayed him, right? And their number was now 11. And so one very important thing must take place before Jesus pours out the gift of the Father, that is the Spirit at Pentecost. And that is the number must be restored. And so what we see is Israel in miniature, represented by the 12 apostles, was about to experience its restoration to its true mission through the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. 
This isn't difficult to take in that, that this is the new Israel, right? What happens? Paul says in Galatians 3.7, those of faith are sons of Abraham, and he'll say elsewhere about the faithful that they are the true Israel of God. So now, as we look at these words at the very end of Luke's gospel, that Luke, Jesus, the last words in Luke's gospel that Jesus speaks, and the last words he speaks in, um, before his ascension, they make so much more sense to us. Let's take a look at those. Look at Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, 44. First, then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What does he mean by saying the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? He's saying the entire Old Testament. Everything that was spoken about me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Listen to this. This isn't accidental that, that Luke uses these words right together again. In his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's the promise that God promised, right? Now look at Luke, I'm sorry, look at Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to them? And his response to them, as you'll notice, you know, he recognizes that they're still struggling with something. And that is they've got a very narrow view, a very ethnocentric understanding about what God's work is. Do you see that? Will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And he says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So there's one thing that he corrects right there, but he corrects the bigger thing too. Listen to what he says in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be. Now, with all of that background from Isaiah in mind, this becomes clear to us, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't speak in a vacuum. Jesus, you know, probably by the time Jesus was 12 years old, he had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized, right? Just by his schooling, most of his schooling, I'd say all of his schooling was probably just the Bible. He has this memorized. And what is he doing? He's bringing these phrases that identify him together in one place in Acts chapter 1. And so when we get to chapter 2 of Acts, we see this, this wonderful fulfillment take place. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a song, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. 
And they were all filled sorry, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What's happening? What's happening is Jesus has ascended, is being coronated, and the earthly reality, the earthly, earthly thing taking place of the Spirit being poured out is a reality that's taking place in heaven, that Jesus has now ascended and taken the throne and is coronated. And we'll come back to that. But did you notice what it said right there? It said, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, listen to this, from every nation under heaven. So right off the bat, when the Spirit is poured out upon the apostles, they begin speaking the languages of these people from every nation under heaven, immediately. And so what do, the, what do they get to see? The disciples immediately get to see a glimpse of things to come, a gaze into the work that the Spirit was about to do through them. So now, when we come to these men in our text, in Acts chapter 4, after healing a lame beggar, Acts 3, and preaching by what means he was healed, namely through the saving work of the crucified and risen Christ in Acts 4. When these men are threatened to keep quiet by the ruling religious leaders, they don't cower. They had cowered earlier, right? When the shepherd was struck, they scattered. And they were cowering often, probably in the room where Jesus left them in his final discourse. But now they don't cower. Why? Because now they know that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus through his temptations, the very same Spirit that strengthened him through Gethsemane and his crucifixion, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead was now indwelling them. Now their fearful trembling was over. They were bold, clear-sighted witnesses. But how did they get there? That's what we've been considering. How did they get there? How did they get to where they could say the prayer that they say right here? They believed in the complete work of Christ that was accomplished for them. They believed in his atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Holy Spirit on them. And the Spirit opened their minds to Scripture. You know, there's an interesting example of an Israelite whose, minds, whose mind was not yet open to Scripture, but should have understood Scripture, but couldn't because he was blind and deaf. Do you remember in John chapter 3, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can this be? And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now Jesus sounds astounded, but he knows why. Nicodemus was probably recognized in his day as the teacher of Israel, probably the man, hey, you've got a Bible question, run to Nicodemus, he knows. But here Jesus lays out a very simple thing to him, that you must be born again by the Spirit to understand Scripture. And that's what's happened to these apostles and the disciples. Do you remember what Acts 2.42 says? We're asking the question, how did they get there? They were renewed by the Spirit. And as they were renewed by the Spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. It's not wrong to say that the apostles devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, is it? Peter, during his lifetime, would speak of Paul's writing as Scripture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread into prayers. That's why they rush back to their friends and pray together the way they do. The whole prayer was scripture-formed and Christ-centered. And so what I want to do really quickly as we wrap this up now is just, I want to notice four things about their prayer here and have some words of application about it. But So let's turn back to Acts chapter 4. Verse 23, and let's point out just a couple of things here. First of all, in 23 and 24, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. So first of all, they recognized something. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. Here there's a hint of Psalm 146, and sometime in your leisure today, after you've finished Ezekiel 16, go read Psalm 146 and see how, how this reference actually brings together so many things about the blind and the deaf and all that stuff. But also in that Psalm, the recognition that God is the sovereign Lord over all creation. It's a rare title to be used in the New Testament, and they use it right here, um, because they know everything's under his command. And sometimes I wonder if we recognize him the way we should as the sovereign Lord over all creation. When things threaten us, do we know that about him? Or has our God become, as, as J.B. Phillips once said in a small little book, your God is too small? Do we know this about him? Um, I was saying earlier today that getting back to the States and seeing the whole bumper culture, bumper sticker culture, <laughs> I wasn't looking forward to, but... You know, there's a lot of Christian bumper stickers out there, and, uh, and some of the ones that just diminish the grandeur of our God are, are bumper stickers. And don't be offended if you have one of these on your car. But, you know, my boss is a Jewish carpenter, or my God is my co-pilot, or something like that. It diminishes who he is in my mind, right? And, we, and it can often become, you know, when we say Jesus is my closest friend or my best friend, even that... That's true, but that's not merely what's true. 
God is the sovereign Lord over all creation. Calvin says that, that God lisps to us when he gives us scripture. He speaks baby talk to us so that we can understand him. He's the sovereign one over all. Do you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan is getting first introduced to Aslan and Mr. Beaver said, she says, who's Aslan? Aslan. And Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beavers. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God isn't safe. He's the God in whose presence we should have a proper reverence and fear every time we enter into it, recognizing, yes, he is our father, recognizing he is the sovereign one over all creation. We've tamed God sometimes, but they hadn't. They hallowed his name. They revered it. And then secondly, he's the Lord of revelation. Did you notice what happens in 25 through 27? Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by his Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. See, they recognized something. They, they saw that he was the God who says things ahead of time and it comes to pass. Just like we've seen, right? We, we watched what Isaiah said about the servant and we watched it come to pass. They knew that, that when God speaks, his things come to pass. He foretold, for instance, in this psalm, Psalm 2, by the way, a coronation hymn, not unlikely read every time one of the Davidic kings was placed and coronated and seated on the throne, this psalm was probably, was probably spoken over that king. And, it, and, and so it was, it was characteristic that the nations would rage and the people's plot in vain. When the kings were installed, it was very often, wasn't it, that the nations were against the Davidic king. And even sometimes his people were against the Davidic king. So this was a common theme but here this psalm absolutely 100% reaches its fulfillment in the Davidic king. It's characteristic in all of Acts that the apostles see a one-to-one -one correspondence. Remember what Peter says when the Spirit was poured out and the, disciples, and the apostles were speaking in languages they never learned? This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. See, God is there. He's not silent. And he's made it known that he is moving all of history to a culminating point when his kingdom is established forever in its fullness. Thy kingdom come. They recognized he was the Lord of revelation. And thirdly, they recognized he's the Lord of providence and of redemption. Look at 28. He said, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They knew all of it was God's plan. They knew that there was human responsibility and God's sovereignty, that those went hand in hand. 
Remember Peter's sermon? They were delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's providential hand could be traced all the way back to that first promise of the coming Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Nothing could thwart his plan. It's one thing to say it'll happen, quite another to actively bring it to pass, but he reveals his will and he makes it happen. And again, we've seen that traced through Isaiah. When I was going through seminary, in my early days, I, I was really wrestling with God's sovereignty, particularly in salvation. And I was reading a, a really interesting book that I commend to you by a man named Herman Bavink called The Doctrine of God. Please see it in its translated language, um, English preferably. Um, but Bavink made a great point to me when I was really wrestling with God's sovereignty over salvation. And, and what he said is, you know, consider this, that if every single person can reject God in his drawing them to salvation, then finite man can bring the infinite God's plan to nothing. And we absolutely know that's not true. Finite can cannot bring the infinite God's plan to nothing. He is sovereign over all. He's the Lord of providence and the Lord of redemption. Thy will be done. And he's the Lord of church and its mission. He's the Lord of the church and its mission. Did you notice this in 29 through 31? And I love this because it's now that they finally ask something in their prayer. And this is what they pray. They say, now Lord, that is curios, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. By the way, it's, it's only Luke that uses that same word servant for Jesus that Isaiah used. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But what do they do? He's the Lord of the church and its mission. You know, they were being ordered by man, not to speak, they were being threatened, and yet their orders from their higher commander was to absolutely speak. But notice what they do in this prayer. They don't call down wrath. They don't even call down for protection, really. I mean, there's a hint of, of uh, you know, judge them for this in that little phrase, look upon their threats, but not much. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what they ask for. This is their knee-jerk reaction in prayer. And that shaking at the end indicates that God gives them what they prayed for. They prayed for, give us this day our daily bread and everything we need to faithfully, boldly serve you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 2 was a coronation hymn. That is, when the king ascends and take his takes his throne and is coronated, um, as king, this psalm was pronounced over him. And I want us to turn back there for a second as we close now. Psalm 2. And particularly, I want to look at verses 7 and 8 for a minute. But before we do, I want to, I want to present some other words to you from John's gospel. Do you remember what Jesus says? 
in John 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Now, what's going on when Jesus says, I'll ask the Father? Well, I want you to see what's going on from Psalm 2. It's very important. But before we get there, remember what he says in, in Luke 24 also. He says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead in repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power. See those, those words, you are my witnesses and I will send the promise of my Father upon you? They go hand in hand. Because Jesus said, I will ask of the Father. Well, what does the Father tell him to ask for him in Psalm 2? He says, I tell the decree. The Lord said to me on his coronation day, you are my son. And today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritage. I will make the ends of the earth your possession." That's the gift, the coronation gift given to the son on his ascension day. And what does Jesus say? I'm going to pour out my spirit as my coronation gift to you, disciples, so that you can bring the father's promise of the nations together. So what is our knee-jerk reaction when the world with the devil's filled, threatens to undo us or to thwart the mission of the sovereign Lord? Are we resting in the fact that the same Holy Spirit that indwelt Jesus through his earthly ministry, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, indwells us and is empowering us for Jesus' sake to go to the nations, to carry out that mission, are you pleading with him to give you the necessary boldness to stand against all opposition? God has revealed his will. There is a righteousness from God that is apart from the law, found only by faith in Jesus, who died for the unrighteous, that the unrighteous should be clothed in righteousness. He's revealed that and made it known to us, right? Because like Nicodemus, the rest of the world's hearts are blind and deaf to this. And unless we speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, ordinary men and women, boys and girls, will know nothing of this great news, of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so pray unceasingly that the sovereign Lord of the church and its mission will increase, that he'll increase your boldness to speak. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word that we could understand it. And we pray that in your power, by the Holy Spirit, the great gift you gave at Pentecost upon your ascension, upon taking the throne, that you would use us mightily, that we would go forth boldly to bring your word to the nations. 
And so Lord, nourish us, embolden us, revive us, and awaken us at your table today as we come. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.